Today, we're going to read from Peter's first letter, which is towards the back of your Bible. Um, if you're reading from the church Bible, you'll find it on page 1217. Um, and if you're reading it from the large print version, you'll find it on page 1886. Now, I'm sure most of us have heard the saying, can't see the wood for the trees. It's a saying that refers to being so deeply involved in something that we lose a balanced perspective of what's actually going on in the present moment. It's something that can happen so easily without us even noticing. We make decisions that had we been looking in from an outside perspective, we would never have made. And that's why it can be important to get the perspective of somebody else from the outside. Businesses often call um, on an outside perspective, don't they? It's when they want to draw on the services of a consultant to look at how they're doing business, how their practices are running. When something goes wrong in an institution or a department in the government, which seems quite frequently, we often call for an independent inquiry. For someone to come in from the outside and give a more balanced view of what's really going on. In today's reading, Peter is addressing the scattered church and he is going to bring a fresh perspective to encourage and spur them on in their mission. And Esther's going to bring the reading for us now. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to God's elect exiles scattered throughout the provinces of Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, who have been chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father through the sanctifying work of the Spirit to be obedient to Jesus Christ and sprinkled with his blood. Grace and peace be yours in abundance. Praise to God for a living hope. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In his great mercy, he has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and into an inheritance that he can never perish, spoil or fade. This inheritance is kept in heaven for you, who through faith are shielded by God's power until the coming of the salvation that is ready to be revealed in the last time. In all this you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while you may have had to suffer griefs in all kinds of trials. These have come so that the proven genuineness of your faith of greater worth than gold, which perishes even through refined by fire, may result in praise, glory and honour when Jesus Christ is revealed. Though you have not seen him, you love him. And even though you do not see him now, you believe in him and are filled with an inexpressible and glorious joy. For you are receiving the end result of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Concerning this salvation, the prophets who spoke of the grace that was to come to you searched intently and with the greatest care trying to find out the time and circumstances to which the Spirit of Christ in them was pointing when he predicted the sufferings of the Messiah and the glories that would follow. 
It was revealed to them that they were not serving themselves, but you. When they spoke of the things that have been told you by those who have preached the gospel to you, by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, even angels long to look into these things. Therefore, with minds that are alert and fully sober, set your hope on the grace to be brought to you when Jesus Christ is revealed at his coming. As obedient children, do not conform to the evil desires you had when you lived in ignorance, but just as he who called you is holy, so be holy in all you do. For it is written, be holy because I am holy. Since you call on a father who judges each person's work impartially, Live out your time as foreigners here in irreverent fear. For you know that it was not with perishable things, such as silver or gold, that you were redeemed from the empty way of life, handed down to you from your ancestors, but with the precious blood of Christ, a lamb without blemish or or defect. He was chosen before the creation of the world, but was revealed in these last times for your sake. Through him you believe in God, who raised him from the dead and glorified him, so your faith and hope are in God. Now that you have purified yourselves by obeying the truth, so that you have sincere love for each other, love one another deeply from the heart, for you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable, through the living and enduring word of God. For all people are like grass, and all their glory is like flowers of the field. The grass withers, and the flowers fall, but the word of the Lord endures forever, and this is the word that was preached to you. Therefore, rid yourselves of all malice and all deceit, hypocrisy, envy, and slander of every kind. Like newborn babies crave pure spiritual milk, so that by it you may grow up in your salvation, now that you have tasted that the Lord is good." Thank you. The first sentence tells us that it's the Apostle Peter, one of the original 12, who wrote the letter. In chapter 5, verse 13, he refers to being in Babylon, but it's thought that Peter was actually writing from Rome. And this is because Babylon in the New Testament is frequently used to refer to Rome on a number of occasions, especially in the book of Revelation. Um, And if this was the case, we can date the letter quite accurately to around 62 to 64 AD and towards the end of Peter's life. The opening sentence also tells us that Peter is addressing churches that are scattered throughout the provinces of Pontius, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. And these churches are all situated in what we know today as Greece. Uh, No, not Greece, Turkey. Get my countries right. Modern-day Turkey. Um, A few years ago, I was fortunate enough enough to go and visit one of these churches, one of these regions called Cappadocia. And here are a a couple of pictures um, of where those churches would have been situated all those years ago. So what was the purpose behind Peter's letter? Well, unlike Paul's letters to the churches in Corinth and Galatia, 
Peter's letter doesn't seem to be in response to any particular issues happening within the churches. There's no obvious signs of infighting, and there's no rebuke from Peter at their behavior. Rather, the purpose of Peter's letter seems to be focused on encouragement. Peter's writing to churches that are in the midst of persecution. This isn't state-sponsored persecution decreed from Rome. That would come later. Rather, this persecution is a more localized form of persecution that they're experiencing from society. Though those in the church aren't losing their lives for their faith, they are losing out. They've become marginalized from society, and increasingly, they're living as second-class citizens. And it's in this context that Peter is writing. In verses 1 to 3, Peter focuses attention at the outset on the identity of his audience. Let's read the first part. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to God's elect, exiles, scattered throughout the provinces of Pontius, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, who have been chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father through the sanctifying work of the Spirit to be obedient to Jesus Christ and sprinkled with his blood. Grace and peace be yours in abundance. When, cho- when Peter chooses to address his audience as God's elect, we could instantly assume that he's addressing a Jewish audience. In Acts 2.9, we know that um, in Acts 2.9, we know that people from Cappadocia, Pontus, and Asia were present when Peter preached at Pentecost. Maybe they were part of this scattered church that Peter's addressing today. Maybe others fled from Jerusalem in Acts 8, when the early church came under persecution and, and formed part of that scattered church. The truth is we can't be sure. But the likelihood is that Peter's audience would have been a mixture of both Jew and Gentile. Because it had been 30 years since Pentecost, and surely during that period, some of the Gentiles would have been added to their number during this time. Which raises the question, why does Peter refer to them as God's elect? It would be unlikely that Peter is using the term God's elect to single out the Jews in the audience. But rather, I believe Peter is using, taking an Old Testament term as a deliberate reference to emphasize that God's new covenant people are no longer marked out simply by bloodline, but rather by putting their faith in the saving work of Jesus Christ. Therefore, God's elect, his chosen people, are now terms that include both Jew and Gentile. And this is reaffirmed in verse 2, which says that they have been chosen according to to the foreknowledge of God the Father through the sanctifying work of the Spirit to be, obedient to, Je- to be obedient to Jesus and sprinkling by his blood. As well as referring to God's people as, as well as referring to the church, sorry, as God's elect, Peter immediately follows this up with another term that had strong Jewish connotations. He refers to them as exiles, 
Now, the definition of an exile is a resident living in a foreign place. It isn't a word used exclusively for Jews, but it was synonymous with Jewish history, going back to the time when they were sent to live as exiles in Babylon in 587 BC. As I've just highlighted, Peter's audience would have been a mixture of both Jew and Gentile. So again, why does Peter use this term? Why does he choose to refer to them as exiles? Well, it's likely that Peter intentionally uses this term to emphasize that for followers of Jesus, home is no longer found on earth or in a specific place like Israel, but rather in the new creation that will come into being when Christ returns. On the screen is some dodgy fella's passport. Now, my passport confirms that I am a British citizen. It's hard to say that. I tried it in the practice. As you can see, my passport has an expiry date. Every 10 years, I have to renew it, otherwise I don't get far. And it becomes void. But one day, when I pass away, and my status as a British, see, I can't say that word, I can't, British citizen will permanently expire. But when we become disciples of Jesus, we, see, we receive a greater citizenship that will never pass away, a heavenly citizenship. As followers of Jesus, we are to prioritize our heavenly citizenship over our time on earth. And Peter is reminding the scattered church to identify themselves primarily as exiles, as sojourners temporarily traveling through this life. But why begin the letter with these two points? Well, as we know, the scattered churches that Peter is addressing are facing a form of persecution. I believe Peter is writing his letter with this in mind. He understands their struggle. And he wants to do what he can to encourage them, to spur them on. So he starts at the very outset by reminding them of their identity. They're God's elect, his chosen people. They're special and dearly loved. And that the suffering that they're facing right now, hard as it is, is temporary, and one day they will return from exile to live as citizens in their heavenly home. So as well as reminding the scattered church of their identity, Peter reminds his readers of the bigger picture, what they have through Christ. Let's read verses 3 to 6a. Praise be to God, Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In his great mercy, he has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and into an inheritance that can never perish, spoil or fade. This inheritance is kept in heaven for you, who through faith are shielded by God's power until the coming of the salvation that is ready to be revealed in the last time. In all this, you greatly rejoice. Peter reminds his listeners that they have received new birth, a living hope to 
through the resurrection of Jesus. And in verse verse 5, that they will be shielded by God's power until Jesus returns. Finally, Peter draws the reader's attention to the glorious riches that they will one day have. In verse 4, they can look forward to an inheritance that will never perish, spoil or fade. And in verse 5, they can anticipate the coming of the salvation that is ready to be revealed at the last time. In the second part of verse 6, Peter acknowledges, though, for, though now for a little while you have been, though, for, though now for a little while you may have had to suffer grief in all kinds of trials. Peter doesn't ignore or play down their suffering. What he does is seeks to put it into context. Firstly, by stating that the bigger picture of eternity. Firstly, by stating that in the big picture of eternity, their suffering is temporary. It's for a little while. Secondly, in verse 7, Peter highlights that there is a divine purpose behind their suffering. Their pain and suffering is not in vain. When the trials disappear, they will be left with a faith that has been purified like gold in a furnace, which will result in praise, honor, and glory. Nothing's wasted. By verses 8 and 9, we can see that even in the midst of this persecution, joy is a present reality. It's not something they have to wait to heaven for. They're experiencing it right now in the struggle. And they can look forward to the end result of their faith, salvation of their souls. Now, in light of their suffering, um, in light of the suffering that they're having to endure, it could easily be tempting, couldn't it, for Peter to console his audience. I know that my, my reaction is, you know, I'd want to go up and give them a hug. Um, but <laughs> he doesn't do this. It's quite strange he doesn't do that. In verses 10 and 12, Peter emphasizes how privileged they are. That's kind of the last thing you'd think, wouldn't you, in modern day? We've, but he, he, that's what he does. Um, he emphasizes how privileged they are because they are beneficiaries of the Messiah and the glories to follow. And he refers to the prophets and the angels who diligently searched and inquired about such a time. They're living in this time that the prophets longed for. So far in the first 12 verses then of Peter's letter, he's yet to instruct or advise the scattered church to do anything. Rather, Peter has chosen a more positive approach. But why does he set out to do this? Well, my theory is that Peter knows how important it is for believers to understand their why. Why put up with persecution? Why sacrifice so much heartache and pain? Why not simply opt out for the path of least resistance? Verses 1 to 12 seeks to put language to this question by reminding them that they are God's children. 
Because the resurrection of Jesus, you now enjoy new birth, a living hope. And because they're currently exiled, you will one day return to your permanent home and receive glorious inheritance that will never perish or fade, a salvation which will last for the end times. I'll just... Here we go. Oh, I need to go about one. There we go. Now I was thinking, in the, if anyone, does anyone under 30 know who, this, know who this person is? No, that's shocking, I feel old. Okay. Steve Redgrave, this is Steve, Steve Redgrave, and Steve Redgrave is a five-time Olympic gold-winning rower. And um, you've just made me feel very old, Dan. Shocking. I remember watching a documentary years ago about this guy and um, in his pursuit to win that fifth medal. Picture the scene. It's 5 a.m. on a frosty January morning. It's still dark, and Redgrave is in his boat, rowing up the river. Steam is, like, coming off his body. He's dripping in sweat. His legs and arms are pumping and filled with lactic acid. And his body is in just a whole world of pain. He's two and a half years away from the next Olympics. But he trains as if it's race day. What drives him to leave the comfort and warmth of his bed? Why does he sacrifice so much, put his body under so much strain, day after day, month after month, year after year? He can see the big picture. Despite the fact that the race is years away, Steve Redgrave is driven by the prize. He understands that success happens by faithfully sticking to the process. Train hard, eat well, rest well, day after day after day. Now, let's imagine Steve Redgrave loses sight of the prize. I can imagine it won't be long before he hits the snooze button on the alarm clock at four in the morning, chooses his warm bed over a cold river. He may even start to take the odd day off. He may even have the, cheek, the odd cheeky McDonald's. But come race day, he'd be found wanting. I think Peter starts his letter off this way because in the midst of their persecution, he wants to give his readers a reality check so that they can, as Peter puts it in verse 13, be alert and fully sober, able to set their hope on the grace to be brought to them when Jesus Christ is revealed at his coming. It's important to stay focused, to see the wood for the trees, and to not lose sight of the prize. In the second part of the passage, Peter unpacks how this should look practically. And he does this first by addressing how the believers are to relate and engage with the world. So let's read um, verses 14 to 16. As obedient children, do not conform to the evil desires you had when you lived in ignorance. 
But just as he who called you is holy, so be holy in all you do. For it is written, be holy, because I am holy. As God's children, as God's elect, they are his children. And their lives are to be characterized by obedience to their heavenly father. And Peter takes the verse, be holy because I am holy from Leviticus, which originally applied to Israel. And he reapplies it for the scattered church. As God is holy, they too are to go out and reflect the family image and live out holy lives in their communities. Their conduct will reveal the God they serve. Secondly, Peter addresses how the believers are to relate to God. In verse 17, we read, Since you call on a father who judges each person's work impartially, live out your time as foreigners here in reverent fear. Peter's readers are to live out their time as foreigners, or as verse 1 puts it, exiles, so they don't become too influenced with the ways of the world. And they're to do this in reverent fear, because not, there will not only be a day of salvation, which is great news, but there will also be a day of judgment, where their words, their actions, will be called to account. They're also to live with reverent fear, because as verse 18 to 20 reveals, the salvation they've received has come at a cost worth far more than silver and gold the precious blood of Christ, the Lamb of God, which has been revealed to them. We're not to cheapen what Jesus did to us. Um, and that's why we're supposed to have that reverent fear. The church is to live in that reverent fear. It's a healthy fear. It's not a, a negative fear. It's a good fear. Finally, verses 22 to chapter 2, 3, focus on how the scattered church is are to relate to one another as fellow believers. As a result of new birth through Jesus, believers are called to love one another deeply from the heart. Peter draws from a passage from Isaiah 40 to re-emphasize just how temporary and fleeting their time on earth is. With this in mind, they're to rid themselves of all malice, and all deceit, hypocrisy, envy, and slander of every kind. Like newborn babies, they're to crave pure spiritual milk, so that by it you may grow up in your salvation, now that you have tasted that the Lord is good. The issues Peter is dealing with in his letter aren't limited to the scattered church back in the first century. Though we in the UK may not be persecuted to the same extent as other countries and cultures in our world, we are living in a culture that is increasingly pushing Christianity to the margins of society. I mean, there may be people here in the room tonight who are currently suffering or have suffered because of their faith. It may be suspicion and hostility from members of your own family. For others, it could be rejection from classmates at school. 
It could be ridiculed from colleagues in the workplace or being overlooked for a promotion that really had your name on it. Whatever hardship or suffering you may have faced or are facing, I believe Peter's letter is a timely reminder for us to keep going, to not lose sight, like Steve Redgrave, to keep our eyes on the prize. Peter's letter firstly reminds us who we are. We are God's elect, his chosen people. How amazing is that? Do we remember that? Do we forget that? We're God's chosen people. Secondly, it reminds us what we have. We have received new birth, a living hope that has been given to us through the saving work of Jesus. How amazing is that? Do we remember that? Or do we forget it? Finally, it reminds us what we one day will have. Currently, we're exiles living in a foreign land. But we can take heart in the knowledge that it's only for a short while. One day, we will receive our, our future inheritance. We will, we will enjoy living as heavenly citizens, home, face to face with Jesus. Friends, let's, let's be encouraged by what we've heard tonight. As we go out into the week, let's, let's not lose sight of the wood for the trees. And let's keep our eyes fixed firmly on Jesus. I'll just pray. Lord, forgive us for the times when we stray, when we lose sight of the wood for the trees, when our heads get turned to the left or to the right. Lord Jesus, help us to fix our eyes firmly upon you, to live as your children in the world. Lord, encourage us in whatever struggles we may be going through. I just pray that your word really speaks to our spirits and that we're encouraged in the truest sense of the word that as we leave tonight, we have courage. We are filled with your courage. Lord Jesus, help us to be people who mirror you in our workplaces in our retirement homes, in our schools, in our colleges. Help us, Lord, to be the, the hands and feet of Jesus in your world today. For your glory, Lord, for your kingdom. Amen. We're going to respond with um, a couple of songs. Firstly, fix, turn your eyes upon Jesus, and then there is a day. <laughs>